Hello, everyone. Michael here with just a quick introduction to a special episode of the podcast, because this one has almost nothing to do with role-playing games. But it is almost nothing, not nothing. If you follow me on social media, you probably are already aware that I started a second podcast that is, again, not really related to role-playing games. It is all about the TV show Smallville, a show that I watched religiously when it was on and have recently went through and did a complete rewatch now that it is available on Hulu. And there was so much about this show that I loved, but there's also so much about it that makes no damn sense that I decided to do a fan rewatch. We're going to go back and watch every single episode of the show and talk about it. We just started releasing episodes of the Smallville show, which is called Smallville Farm to Fable. And each episode features a different guest co-host. And we have a few little segments, but for the most part, it's just us talking about the show, the good, the bad, the ugly, and in some cases, a lot of cases, the silly. But I really enjoy it. And the response so far has been very positive, but frankly, there's a lot more people that listen to the RPG Academy than do the Smallville show. And while I don't expect there to be a 100% crossover, I'm hoping that maybe a few of you who have just not known about this yet, hasn't heard about it, maybe doesn't follow me on social media, would be willing to check it out. So we're going to release the first episode of the Smallville show on this feed. Uh, that will be it. We're not going to keep doing this. This isn't just a way to drive up numbers because honestly it doesn't even work because they're two different feeds normally. But just in case you had missed the announcements but might be interested or at least willing to listen to the first episode to see if you're interested, here you go. So without further ado, please enjoy the pilot episode of Smallville Farm to Fable. It's time, son. Time for what? The truth. I want you to take a look at something. I think it's from your parents. Your... your real parents. What does it say? I tried to decipher it for years, but it's not written in any language known to man. What do you mean? Your real parents weren't exactly from around... here. Well, where are they from? What are you trying to tell me, Dad? That I'm from another planet? And I suppose you stashed my spaceship in the attic. Actually, it's in the storm cellar. Somebody save me indeed. Hello and welcome to Farm to Fable, a Smallville rewatch fan cast. I am your forever host, Michael, and I'm also the host of the RPG Academy podcast, 
where I talk mostly about role-playing games, but all tabletop gaming in general. I also organize a three-day gaming convention held in Dayton, Ohio each November. Before we get started, please be advised that Farm to Fable may include adult language and reference adult behavior. Please consider us PG-13 in regards to content acceptability for your young ones. Also, this is your spoiler warning. While we will focus on each episode week to week, our discussions may and likely will reference the entire series run and the wider Superman mythos. You can email our show at smallvillefancast at gmail.com with any comments, concerns, or questions. Please follow us on Twitter at Farm2Fable and join our Facebook group page at Smallville Farm to Fable. With all of that out of the way, let's meet today's co-host. And for today's first episode, I am joined by co-host Alan Big Al Nicholas. Alan, welcome to Smallville. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I'm over here in the desert of West Texas, in Monahans, Texas, to be precise. And I think a little Kansas town sounds pretty nice. I'm really happy that we're going there. I'm a big comics guy, but that's right now. Back when Smallville first came on, I really wasn't. And the only reason that I ended up watching it is because my parents got me into it. I was in college, and they would send me VHS care packages, and boom, here comes Care Package with Smallville. So I'd call them up and say, what's this? And they said, well, it's Superman. Watch it. So I can't wait to get started on this. Wow. So VHS Care Packages definitely dates both of us. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, you know, now, of course, I'm just watching everything on Hulu streaming. So this is going to be the first episode. So there will be a, a few differences in this episode compared to future ones. Uh, one of which is that our plan is since we're going to have rotating co-hosts, At the end of this episode, Alan is going to pose a question that I will then ask the next co-host as a way to kind of help get to know them and, you know, talk about Smallville and Superman canon. But this is the first episode. We haven't had a previous co-host, so I'm going to ask you the question on my own. Are you ready? I am ready. Fantastic. So Smallville is well known, especially in the early seasons, for a freak of the week approach where residents of Smallville become infected by the meteor rocks, a.k.a. kryptonite and develop superhuman powers and abilities, often related to their personalities, traits, hobbies, or passions. So with that in mind, Alan, if you lived in Smallville and became infected with meteor rocks, what strange abilities would you develop? All right, I gave this a lot of thought. And um, Michael, have you ever read Stephen King's The Tommyknockers? I have. So you know how those guys, you know, the whole town became infected, and they got smart, but they got dumb smart. (laughs) So I think that's what would happen with me. I I would develop some kind of superhuman intelligence, but it would be more instinctual based on efficiency. So like, for instance, I'd be able to take tests really well because I could just kind of analyze the the questions and the words and pull out answers that way. And then in math, I do a lot of shortcuts. So I'd be smart, but not really smart. And this would be fine and great until it started to interfere with my interactions with other students. Like, for instance, maybe I wanted to date Lana Lang. Well, I wouldn't be waiting for her to say yes. I'd figure out a way to make it happen. You know what I mean? Okay. All right. So so manipulative without necessarily any sort of emotional intelligence to go along with it. Exactly. What about you, Michael? Uh, so as for me, as I'm a podcaster, so I spend way too much time thinking about what I think other people think of me. So being able to hear their thoughts and know what they think of me would be handy. 
Uh, but secondarily, I do think I'm funny. So being able to make people laugh as if they think I'm as funny as I think I'm funny would also be a good time and a power I totally would not abuse. <laughs> uh, that's great. All right. So we're going to open up the Smallville yearbook and look at our cast of characters. For this first episode, we're going to go over the entire main cast. But in the future, we'll just touch on any main cast changes and any notable guest appearances. So off the top, we have the star from another world, Clark Kent, a.k.a. Superboy, a.k.a. Superman, a.k.a. Kal-El. And in Smallville, Clark is played by Tom Welling. Thomas John Patrick, a.k.a. Tom Welling. I was born in 1977. He's an American actor, producer, director, and a former model. He was actually found during a catalog shoot search, uh, started modeling, was suggested he start acting. Uh, he had a few small roles. He was in a couple episodes of Judging Amy. Um, and it looks like he also was in Cheaper by the Dozen and Cheaper by the Dozen too. But primarily, Smallville is the majority of his acting career. Uh, he did go on to direct some of the episodes as well. He is very pretty. <laughs> he is. He is a handsome, handsome man. And it's one of the things I, I will talk a little bit about. There's a bit of cognitive dissonance that, at least in the early episodes, there's this opinion that Clark Kent's kind of a dunce. But Clark Kent, who is in the show 14 years old, is being played by 24-year-old Tom Welling, who's 6'3 and carved from marble. And it just doesn't always make sense when people act like he's this geeky little dude. Absolutely. I noticed that, too. It's really interesting because here's this guy that's a freshman, and he doesn't look like a freshman <laughs> at all. <laughs> no. No, he looks like uh, the, the uh, teacher's aide, at, at least. But to his credit, he will always be one of the Superman that I think of anytime I think of Superman. I mean, he does a fantastic job. And again, obviously, we're going to talk about that as we get into the show. But um, I think he does a really good job. I think overall, I think the cast of this show is better than the show deserves. And I love the show. And we're going to probably nitpick a few things here and there. But it comes from a place of love because I truly love the show. I wouldn't do this you know, series of episodes. The plan is to do every single episode, all 10 seasons, if I didn't love the show. But there are some silly things and dumb things that happen within it. But overall, the acting is actually pretty darn good. I agree completely. Next, we have Clark's forever crush, Lana Lang, played by Kristen Kruick. So, Kristen's got an interesting career. She's got 19 credits on imdb.com. And primarily, she's in TV, a lot of one-off episodes. Smallville is by far her biggest role. But what's interesting to me is that she became a bit of a CW regular. Um, after Smallville, you've got uh, two other CW shows. Currently, Burden of Truth, which is on CW. And previous to that, Beauty and the Beast, uh, which was on CW from 2012 to 2016. It's really kind of interesting that 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 kind of loyalty developed between her and that um, station. Uh, in terms of films, there's basically one notable film that she was the star of, Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li. <laughs> yep. I remember seeing that in the theater. Did you? I it, this I never saw it, so <laughs> I'm glad one of us has seen it. Uh, but I thought that was pretty interesting, and... Um, what I'll what I'll throw in there. What's interesting to me about that is that I remember that there was a bit of a bit of uh, backlash when that happened because she didn't look like a Chun Li, but she is in fact 
ancestry-wise, Dutch and Chinese. All right, so now we're on to Lex Luthor, who makes up the the triad, the the, the three main characters, in my opinion. Everything, everybody else is secondary, though screen time may argue that. But this is played, or, but Lex is played by Michael Rosenbaum, who, other than being on Smallville, I know him best as the voice of uh, Kid Flash and Flash from the DC comic animated series. Series. Um, he's also an accomplished musician. And he has two other podcasts that he's involved in that he does, uh, one by himself and then another with, um, the guy who plays Taserface from the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, uh, which is a very interesting podcast. They're all about love and joy and being grateful. And, and, uh, it's like a very uplift, uplifting and positive show. I, the name is escaping me currently, but I'll throw it in the show notes if anybody's interested in checking it out. He has a little bit more filmography. Um, Michael appeared in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Urban Legends, Pool Hall Junkies, Sorority Boys, Cursed, a few others. And he's got various uh, voice work, including the Justice League, Batman Beyond, Teen Titans, uh, Jackie Chan Adventures. Apparently, he also voiced uh, some video games, Gladius, Yakuza, and Dark Sector. That voice acting is really what surprises me the most. I mean, I think that he's got such a uh, strong presence, even in this pilot episode. It's really surprising to me that the majority of, of what he's done has been voice acting. Next is Pete Ross, Clark's childhood best friend and the first non-family member he confides a secret to, though not right away. Played by Sam Jones III. Okay, so Sam Jones III doesn't have a lot of credits. Not a lot of acting credits, really. He does a lot of one-offs. His biggest film role is in Glory Road. Uh, Glory Road being that uh, film about the first all-black team to appear in the NCAA basketball tournament. And it's got that guy that everybody thinks, oh, it's Matthew McConaughey, but it's not. His name's Josh Lucas. But Glory Road's his biggest role, probably, and I don't think it's a big role in that movie. Other than that, it's a bunch of one-offs. Uh, what I thought was interesting when I picked him up was, uh, or picked up his uh, IMDb filmography is I had forgotten that in conjunction with Smallville, they had done this little webisode series called The Chloe Chronicles. Did you ever watch any of those? I did not, but I also came across that as well when I was doing some research um, and remembered they existed, but I never watched any of them. Same here. It's a, it's a, it's just a black hole to me. All right, so now we are on to Chloe Sullivan, who there's there's drama around the character Chloe Sullivan, and there's obviously drama around the actress that plays her, Allison Mack. So Chloe is a show-created character. There's, there's no equivalent in any of the comics as far as I'm aware of. Uh, she's a complete show invention. And again, from the, the brief research I did, uh, wasn't very popular early on, but it is my belief that Chloe is the best thing in Smallville, period. Her, I think her character and the way she's portrayed by Allison Mack are just a, a column of might that this whole show rests on. And I don't think it would be nearly as good or successful without her. I love Chloe Sullivan. She's one of my favorite characters. However, the actress that plays her, Allison Mack, has done some truly awful things as of as of recording, she has pled guilty and admitted culpability to doing some terrible, terrible things uh, in relation to the Nexium cult 
not good stuff. But so please, anyone listening, do not take any of my glowing praise and comments about her acting as Chloe Sullivan as any sort of endorsement to her actual off-screen behavior because it's it's bad. I don't like it. I wish it didn't happen. I feel sorry and feel bad for those that were affected by her, this cult and her actions in it. But when we talk about this show, we're going to talk about Chloe and Chloe is a great character and Allison plays her so well. Uh, but I do want to differentiate between those as best I can. Um, Allison grew up uh, in Long Beach. She was born in Germany, but came to us when she's very young. She started working when she was four. So she has a long list of uh, work, you know, some of it commercials, some of it movies, some of it um, voice work, uh, particularly in, she was in, was it the ant bully? Uh, honey, we shrunk ourselves. Some uh, dirty little secrets. Uh, so she, yeah, she has obviously has a very long list of credits stretching back to when she was very young. Uh, currently, though, pled guilty to some serious crimes. Very likely, her act, acting is probably on hold until after this is resolved, and probably several years spent in jail. But I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to kind of second some of your thoughts. I really. From the beginning, I had no problems with the uh, character of Chloe Sullivan. And I liked just the spunkiness of that character and uh, pretty much everything that she did from the beginning going on. But like you said, uh, there are some really horrible things that Allison Mack has done. Yeah, it's my belief that Clark should have gotten with Chloe and just that would have been the end of the show. I just think just they should have got together. They were perfect for each other. The end. Amen. I mean, we don't need anything else, right? I mean, it's forget right. <laughs> forget that Superman even exists. We just need to end Smallville with with Clark That's, and Chloe together. I'm good with that. Right. All right. So uh, on to Jonathan Kent, uh, aka Paul Kent, played by John Snyder. Schneider. Um, so this is crazy because I had no clue that John Schneider was Bo Dukes from the Dukes <laughs> of Hazzard. I had no clue, and that is by far like. The biggest thing he's done, I'm sure that everybody out there listening to this is like, you're an idiot. And I agree. I'm an idiot. I had no clue. <laughs> uh, but that explains why he makes such a good Paul Kent, too, because he really kind of digs into that Duke's kind of character. I can see that. Yeah, I do think he does a really good job of playing Paul Kent. And I, again, out, out of all the Superman films and stories that I am familiar with, I would say he's the best. Would you? Yeah. Man, I I have to admit, I I really like, um, what's his name in Man of Steel? Kevin Costner. Oh, I love Kevin Costner in that. I, I don't like the way they, they did him. I don't like the way they killed him off, but I loved Kevin Costner in that role. I, I think Kevin Costner is a really good actor, and I think his portrayal was solid, but I don't like the way that movie pro portrayed him and, and how, like, it's, you know, I don't know, just the the selfishness, but that is neither here nor there. Uh, but yeah, I would actually say Jonathan Kent, uh, John Schneider would probably be my tops. Uh, so after that, we are on to Martha. Why did you say that name? Kent, uh, played by Annette O'Toole. Uh, Annette O'Toole is a, a lovely woman, brilliant actress. She has a list of, of filmography a mile long. Notably to me, she was in Superman 3 as Lana Lang. She also played the adult Beverly Marsh in the Stephen King's It Adaptation from the 1990s. 
Um, and then she was also in Smallville for 132 episodes. Again, I think her Ma Kent might be the best portrayal I've seen. Well, I'm, I'm not going to argue that at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that is our main cast. And, and this cast will stay very consistent for through the first three years and mostly consistent almost all the way through until we get into the much later seasons. We have one quote unquote guest star in this episode. Hey, Clark, look who came to check up on you. Uh, yes, that guest star is going to be the actor portraying Lionel Luther. And that actor is John Glover. First and foremost, I want to really say that I love this character and I love the way Lionel Luther and Lex Luther interact. The angst between father and son, the conflict is really phenomenal. And the same way that you mentioned Chloe holding, being a pillar of might for the show, I think that that relationship, especially in the early seasons, is also one of those just staples that really kept the show interesting and kept everything going. John has more, has, has a bit more of a career. He's been in several movies. He's been in some big movies. Um, for me, probably the highlight is Scrooged, uh, because I love Scrooge. It's one of my favorite movies. But he was also in Gremlins 2. He was in Robocop 2. Uh, he was in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, uh, which is probably my favorite John Carpenter film, even, even more so than The Thing. I love The Thing. That's my favorite John Carpenter movie. Well, it would have to be between the two of them for me personally. But <laughs> So, and then interestingly enough, I thought it was uh, fascinating that he also voiced the Riddler uh, in a couple of things, uh, a video game and uh, two animated series that did not last very long at all. And then also interesting for me is two other DC um, properties that he had roles in. Uh, the first being Batman and Robin, and we need to spend no time on that. And yep. in fact, you can even you can even cut that out of this episode if you want to. Forget <laughs> I even said it. Uh, and then the second one being uh, Shazam. And what's interesting about Shazam is that he gets to play the same basic character as Lionel Luther. He gets to play a bad dad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, so he's he's a really uh, a good addition, a good guest star whenever he's present. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of time in this pilot, but uh, I do I do like him as the role of in the role of Lionel Luther. And I think we should actually give extra special guest star credit to his hair. He has great hair in this pilot, but as the series goes on, his hair takes on the, a true namesake lion-like mane. And it's just like all of his power and authority is just bursting forth in this glorious mane of hair. And it is amazing. Absolutely. And uh spoilers for anybody who hasn't watched Smallville. I can't imagine that if you haven't watched Smallville, you're listening. But when he goes blind, uh the the blind eyes and the hair is just such a fantastic thing. It's so good. And there's actually an episode um later in the series where he gets his hair shaved and he looks good with short hair, too. So that long hair is a choice. Good choice, but not his only choice. He could pull off any hairstyle he wants. Absolutely. All right. So with that out of the way, we're going to grab a copy of this week's Daily Planet, check out the bylines, and see who brought us this episode. So this is episode one, season one, The Pilot. The date of original airing was October 16th, 2001. The character of Superman was created by Jerry Seigel and Joe Schuster. 
And Smallville was created by Alfred, I'm going to say Go or Gal and Miles Millar. And the writers of this episode were Alfred Go and Miles Millar. Now, the director for this episode was David Nutter. Are you familiar with his filmography at all? I am from X-Files. I was a huge uh, filer, file back in the day. Uh, in fact, the VHS care packages we talked about, that started with the X-Files and just kind of expanded. But uh, I'm familiar with David Nutter from the X-Files. I'm also big original. Like, I think the first five seasons of X-Files are nearly perfect. And I just I like to stop there. Good choice. But David Nutter is a long-tenured director, and he does a lot of TV directing, um, particularly pilots. Now, I'm no movie insider or your filmography or whatever, you know, Hollywood insider, uh, but I listen to a lot of podcasts about movies and TVs and that kind of thing. And I know that when you are the director of a pilot, that's a lot of weight on your shoulders because you're uh, – so you're primarily responsible for setting the tone and tenor of the show that will have to carry on throughout. And you know, because there's a lot of weight put onto the shoulders of that director, there's also a lot of compensation. Like, uh, if you're the director of a pilot that gets picked up to series, you get paid every episode. So it's a very lucrative position if you can be someone who does pilots that are successful. And apparently David Nutter's pretty good at it. So here are a list of shows, and this is not a complete list, of pilots that David Nutter has done. Space Above and Beyond, Sleepwalkers, Roswell, Dark Angel, both Smallville Pilots, Tarzan, Without a Trace, Supernatural, Terminator, The Sarah Chronicle, Sarah Connor Chronicles, The Mentalist, and Arrow. So every one of those shows, he was the director of the pilot. All of those shows obviously got picked up to season. Some of them, multiple Arrow's been going on now forever. Uh, he also directed just some, some episodes of Super Force, Superboy, X-Files, Millennium, ER, and Game of Thrones. So he's really good at what he does. And I have to say, I think this pilot works really well. I think, you know, again, I don't know if David Nutter actually had a lot to do with the casting. I, I don't, again, I just don't know how much he had to do with that. But I think the casting of the show is perfect, pitch perfect. Um, just the tone of the show is set so well in the pilot that obviously I think he was the right man for the job. So overall, your thoughts on this pilot, do you think it does a good job as a pilot? Well, I think it does an excellent job. Uh, but before I talk about the pilot for a few seconds, I want to talk about David Nutter and what you just said, because A, I had no idea about the lucrativeness of directing a pilot that gets picked up. Two, Space Above and Beyond is my favorite show that didn't make it past the season. And C, David Nutter makes a decision in one a particular scene in this episode that I will go into in more detail later on that is a phenomenal directorial decision and one that even directors of film uh, have not chosen to do and could have done and it would have improved their films. Um, so this – David Nutter knows what he's doing. But about the pilot, briefly, this – Rewatching this pilot, there's a couple of things that are dated, but honestly, this is one of the best pilots I've ever seen. It holds up. It holds up much more than it should. Um, I mean, this is what, 20 years later, give or take, and it, it really holds up much better than you'd expect. I was as surprised about that as well. Like, uh, obviously I love the show 
and I saw that it was on Hulu and I started to start watching it again. And there's a few episodes that are pretty rough. I, I think the second episode is really bad in my opinion, but I think the pilot is great. I'm very, very glad that he was the one that directed it. I'm really glad I got picked up the series. Um, and I think, again, I think he did a great job setting the tone and tenor that, that the other directors will come in and follow. Uh, very quickly, I mentioned in his uh, filmography, he did both pilots. So there is an unaired pilot to Smallville, which is like 90% exactly the same. Um, again, for anyone who may not know, the way TV shows work, um, you know, you can watch Pulp Fiction and Julius does a great job explaining how pilots work and some of them become shows and some of them don't. A director, a, a company, whatever, will make a pilot to try to sell that show to a network. It's like a proof of concept. Like, here's what we think the show will be about. This is what it will look like. This is where we think it can go. And the show is either picked up or not. So from what I can under, uncover through my Google foo is that Annette tool was always the, the choice for Martha Kent. But she was not available when they had to film the pilot in order to show the CW brass to see if it got picked up. So they actually had a, an, another actress in that role, but it wasn't like the other actress did a bad job. It wasn't like a Back to the Future Eric Stoltz situation where two mm. weeks into filming, they fired him. They knew that it was going to be a net, but they needed to film the pilot. So there's a there's a pilot out there with a different actress who plays all of Martha's roles or you know basically plays Martha throughout. It's pretty much exactly the same other than that. Once the show was picked up, they just refilmed the scenes that Martha was in with Annette and kind of blended them together. There is a little trivia that in the scene where Martha and Kent are driving away from Smallville uh, before the meteor strike happens, that apparently that is an image from the original pilot with the other actress. And if you look really close, I did some freeze framing and zooming in. It does look like the hairstyle is different, but I really couldn't tell. If someone didn't tell me that that was a different lady in the truck with Jonathan, I would not have known. Uh, but yeah, there's a second pilot floating around somewhere if anyone's interested in checking it out. That's pretty cool. Alrighty. So now that all of that's out of the way, are you ready to go exploring in the Kawachi Caves to get a glimpse of where we came from as well as where we may be going? Yeah, let's do this. All right. So, Alan, does this episode feature a vehicle crashed or otherwise destroyed? Yes. Follow up. Was Clark responsible? Ish. Perfect. Does this episode feature someone falling unconscious for any reason other than going to sleep? Yes. Follow up. What was the cause? Lex drives off a bridge and into the water. Does this episode feature someone in the hospital? No. Does this episode feature a table being destroyed? No. Does this episode feature Clark telling or showing someone besides his forever crush, Lana, his powers and abilities? Yes. Follow-up. Does that person die, lose memory, or otherwise become unable to share this knowledge or become a confidant of Clark? Of course. Memory loss. All right. Does this episode feature Clark using his powers irresponsibly? Yes. Does this episode feature a moment where the character travels a seemingly long way to have a short conversation and then leave? No, but almost. Does this episode feature a conversation between two people where one person has their back to the other and weirdly talking over their shoulder? Yes. Follow-up. Was this person facing away Lex? Yes. Does this episode feature a particularly thirsty moment for one of our characters? Unfortunately, no. Does this episode feature a cheeky bit of dialogue that hints at or directly re references the wider Superman mythos? Yes. 
Does this episode feature a moment where a contemporary song cue that has lyrics and perfectly sums up a character's thoughts and or desires? Oh my god, yes. <laughs> Perfect. So now that we have this roadmap of where we're going, let's use our x-ray vision and look closely at this week's episode. Hey, uh, Michael, before we move on, you know, this particularly thirsty moment, I got a question about that. Yeah. There's this, like, moment between uh, Paul Kent and Lena Lang's aunt that almost qualifies, wouldn't you say? It's close, and, and that's one of the things that we will talk about. Um, I have a feeling that now uh, Facebook stalks Jonathan Kent, though I doubt Jonathan Kent has a Facebook page. Um, definitely there was, there was a little bit there, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't classify my mind as thirsty. Thirsty. All righty then. There are a couple others that are close, but I don't think anything falls in there yet. But again, maybe we'll, this will be our first call to action to any potential listeners that we have. Uh, by the time this comes out, we're going to have a Twitter handle and a Facebook page. If you think there's a particularly thirsty moment in this episode that we did not recognize, let us know. All right, so our episode opens. We got a view from space. We see a spaceship, which, in my opinion, looks nothing like the ship that we see later in the series, uh, and a bunch of flying rocks past the moon heading towards Earth. Uh, the, we then see a helicopter flying over a cornfield and a title card stating that it's October 1989. Um, and we get a great panning shot of a welcome to Smallville, Kansas, population 25,001 quote, cream corn capital of the world, end quote, billboard. I, I love that setup because the payoff comes not too long after that. Next, we get an interior shot of the helicopter. But the first thing we actually see is the front page of a daily planet with a big headline that reads, Queen Industries CEO missing, presumed dead. I love that. I love that so much. I do too. So if you freeze frame it a little bit, you can read some of the article and it's not, no, not all of it. It's not very clear, but it does indicate that they believe that there was in fact foul play and they would be searching for those who are responsible. And then we get to see who was behind it. And behind it, I mean the paper, because Lionel Luther is the one reading the paper being played by the, of course, the uh, incomparable John uh, Glover. Uh, he looks over at a young Lex Luther who has the most amazing red hair wig. Uh, and Lionel bashes young Lex for having his eyes closed and being afraid. Luthers are not afraid, he yells, frighten him even more. And I think very importantly, he says, you have a destiny, Lex. I think that line right there is sort of, it, it lays out the roadmap for Lex's arc throughout this entire series. Lex believes that he has a destiny. He's constantly searching for what that might be. And he kind of takes on an air of self-importance. He thinks because his father has told him repeatedly. So that he has a destiny. A destiny. Destiny also comes up uh, in a Clark exchange that happens later in this episode that I think is really interesting as well. But, but I totally agree with you in terms of a theme. I think that destiny might be, the one of the big themes for this first episode. Um, I mean, from the beginning, uh, shortly after the the uh, scenes that you just described, you've got Pa Kent and, and Martha Kent in a truck talking about how they never had a kid. And lo and behold, destiny arrives. So I <laughs> yes. think it's, it's kind of a big deal. So next we cut to Martha and Jonathan Kent entering Nell's flower shop. Nell is the aunt of Lana Lang. They're looking for flowers, and Nell, as you kind of hinted at earlier with that thirsty moment, kind of openly criticizes Martha. 
I definitely get the feeling that Nell and Jonathan bailed some hay back when they were in high school, or at least Nell wanted to, or or maybe now wishes they had. So as Nell's getting the flowers, Martha talks to a three-year-old Lana Lane, who's wearing a fairy princess dress, and asks Martha to make a wish. Martha does, and as you inferred again, we quickly learn that her wish was to have a child. Apparently, she's unable to conceive on her own. They kind of comment on this a little bit. Um, and they even later in the series, it's confirmed that she was unable to conceive naturally. Uh, and then we get a bunch of cheering crowds coming into the town. It appears that Smallville has won the, the homecoming game. Uh, so then we really quickly go back to space where the ship is even closer and the rocks are closer. They're breaking into the atmosphere. Now we're back to the cornfields in Kansas where Lionel is signing paperwork. Looks like he's buying into a factory there. Lex wanders off into a nearby cornfield and he hears a voice saying, help me. Uh, so he stumbles across a young man who stripped down to his boxers, tied, and I use that term lightly because he easily could have gotten off there if he wanted to, uh, to a post as if he's a scarecrow. A red S has been painted on his chest. Uh, we're going to learn later that this is a tradition where the football team selects a freshman each year for homecoming and does this to them as sort of a ritual slash hazing good luck for the homecoming game. At this time, the meteors begin to actually strike, and Lex runs and jumps away from some terrible CGI while the <laughs> Scarecrow kid is engulfed in a, by flung debris from a nearby strike. I'm glad you mentioned the CGI. In terms of weaknesses of this pilot, that's, that's by far the biggest one. Uh, but interestingly enough, other than this opening sequence, uh, they do a pretty good job of hiding it. Uh, anytime you have CGI in darkness – it goes a lot better than when it's in daylight, and uh, so it gets better from this point on. It does, but again, I'm doing a, a full rewatch, and I'm currently on season six. I think I'm like on the next to last episode, heading to season seven, and there's still some really bad CGI there. <laughs> but again, we're talking 2008. That's 12 years ago. This is 19 years ago. Yeah, the CGI is not up to Marvel in-game standards, and I know that, but sometimes I still have a hard time separating that in my head and not you know, criticizing it too hard. Exactly. So now we're back into town proper. We see meteors coming in. They start hitting things in town. We see Lana's parents get out of their car, come together, stare directly and unflinchingly as a meteorite crashes directly into them. Who does This that? is one of my biggest <laughs> nitpicks. They would at least have ducked or something. <laughs> I mean, it's so weird. They're just like, huh? And then, and then they're exploded. Absolutely. That's, that is by far my, my least favorite scene in this entire pilot is them unflinchingly looking at this meteor as it goes straight towards them. Who does that? Nobody. At least again, nobody left because they are exploded. Uh, we have multiple vehicles destroyed, uh, as we tended in our earlier questions by via, by meteor strikes. And then they also hit like a water tower. They're hitting buildings. There's mass chaos. We have a panning shot of this devastation and people running around. And what I think is a truly amazing shot of young Lana crying. And there is no cuter kid and no more awful crying kid face. I can only assume that that kid won an Oscar for this performance. That that had to have happened, right? <laughs> I think so, yeah. That, that, is, uh, that is definitely the moment. Uh, although it, it's still, unfortunately, is right after that horrible CGI <laughs> moment. And anyway, but yes, you're correct. Maybe the, that's the what she's actually, fantastic. that's what she's upset about. It isn't her parents dying. It's the awful CGI. <laughs> it's quite possible. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, it's also the image we see later that apparently someone, I don't know who took a picture of that moment, maybe the person filming, I guess, uh, because it's the cover of a Time magazine article about the meteor strikes that become very famous, uh, obviously in Smallville lore, Kansas got hit by all these meteors and, and, uh, it's known for that. So then we move over. We're now watching John, Martha and Jonathan driving by some cornfields when more meteors strike around them. Uh, there's a great shot. That's that payoff shot where a meteor just perfectly takes out that welcome to Kansas sign that we saw earlier. Uh, and then we will see later that there's a new sign that has replaced it that says that, you know, now it's welcome to Smallville, Kansas, the meteor capital of, of the world. There's a, a quick flash of what looks like a meteorite sort of flashing in front of the Kent's truck. This is actually Clark's spaceship. And the way it sort of cuts parallel across the road they're driving on, it digs a big gouging ditch. And the Kent truck drives into a cloud of smoke. And we learn later flipped over another vehicle that was damaged or destroyed. Uh, we jump back to the cornfield where Lionel is screaming for Lex. He breaks through. Apparently, there's only five remaining corn stalks left standing, but they form a wall he can't see through until he breaks through to see that every other corn stalk in a seven-mile radius has been completely flattened. Uh, he's calling out for Lex, and then he finds him, uncovered him from some loose stalks to see that he's been struck bald with only a few little wisps of hair left on his head. Uh, so then we go back to the Kent truck, which now again has flipped over. It's actually upside down in this gouge of the earth made by Clark's ship. While they're hanging upside down, a very naked young boy with this crazy bird nest hat, lock of hair on top of their head, hunkers down and smiles at them. Really cute, cute kid, but a real dog compared to Lana, I think. All right. So I've got a question for you, Michael. Yep. Uh, what do you think of Having the age of Clark Kent, Kal-El, Superman, Superboy, what do you think of having the age be what it is when they find this orphan child? So I think uh, essentially the the kid was supposed to be like three or four years old, right? Is that? I think so. I think so. I, and, and, and I guess really my question is, I think in a lot of, uh, a lot of the more popular, um, just common knowledge or, or, or other, um, ways that it's been portrayed in, in media. A lot of times it's a baby. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a baby, you know, from a logical perspective makes a lot more sense because you can take a baby and kind of figure out a way to say, Hey, this is my kid, uh, without, you know, suspending too many people's beliefs uh, in the, in the process. But when you have a three year old or a four year old or somebody that can toddle and walk. And I, in fact, I almost, I almost expected him to lift the truck. I thought it was going to happen. Because it, from the original Superman movie back in the 1970s with Christopher Reeve, in that version of Superman, there's a very similar scene to that where they find Clark, who is, or they find Kal-El, who they let her name Clark, who is around that same age. Uh, pa Ken is changing a flat tire and the truck slips off the jack and starts to crush his leg and the, the little toddler, three or four year old, lifts the truck off of him and that's how they realize then that he's obviously not from this earth. Cause I think originally they thought he might still be from earth, but he's just mixed up in all this. But that made it very clear that he obviously wasn't in this version. They quickly find his actual spaceship and maybe mixing. I haven't watched that movie in a long time, but I do know there's the part where he lifts the truck off and they're like, Oh, okay then. So I think in my mind, that's why they did it is it does align with the movie more than maybe the original comics. 
That makes sense. And of course, but I didn't have a problem with it. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I just think it's an interesting choice because the other thing that you do in the same process is that you can establish characters like Lana Lang. Like you wouldn't establish Lana Lang as a child or not a child as a baby, but you can establish Lana Lang in that previous scene by allowing these kids uh, to be the ages that they are, Kal-El to be the age that he is whenever he's found and stuff. So uh, it's a good choice for Smallville. It's a good choice for this particular show. Uh, so we then see Martha. She's got the kid now wrapped in a blanket, and she's carrying him, uh, walking with Jonathan along that ditch. They, again, they come across Clark's spaceship or Kal-El spaceship. There's the talk that Martha wants to keep the child, that, that you know the child found them, and Jonathan's like, well, you can't just, you know, just can't find kids and keep them. Um, and so if, uh, this is obviously a direct callback to Martha's wish. She has gotten a child. So, yay. Uh, so then we had a commercial break. Uh, we obviously I'm watching on Hulu, so I don't have to worry about those. Yay, Hulu. And then we get the iconic Kent farm with that red barn and yellow farmhouse that we will see in so many episodes to come. And we see what is supposed to be a 14, maybe 15-year-old Clark, again, played by 24-year-old Tom Welling, who is six feet, three inches, and carved from marble. CW is great. And he's reading something on the internet about a really fast kid. There's another article about a small child able to lift a car off his father. Again, I think a direct callback to uh, the Superman movie, maybe also the Hulk movie. Who knows? Already, we can see that Clark is searching for answers. And this is an actually interesting thing that I had not considered before. You know, I mean, I grew up reading comics. I've watched all the Superman movies and him growing up in the Kent household is a big part of who Superman is. You know, that that is why Superman is Superman. But I'd never really considered before what did their parents tell him and when did they tell him? Like, I just kind of always assumed they said, hey, you're we found you in a cornfield. You're from another planet, but we're going to raise you as our own. But it it makes sense that they wouldn't actually do that because a child wouldn't be able to comprehend that at a young age so they've always just told clark you're special you have these abilities no one else has them you can't tell anybody and i don't know there's just something about that struck me this rewatch that that's kind of interesting to start with him where he's different and he doesn't know yet why you know it's uh it's it's semi-reflective of um the way that he's handled in man of steel from the standpoint of you've got these powers and you can't tell anybody but I think you're right. What's really interesting is that you've got this focus on, at least in the pilot, this focus on, well, who am I? Where do I come from? It's really, it's another theme that I think kind of winds its way through this episode. And it's really well done. Uh, so then we see Clark getting ready for school. There's this really cute moment where he takes a drink of milk from the straight from the jug and he gets admonished by Martha. And just for Jonathan to come in and do the same thing and take a swig from the milk jug himself. And I just really liked that touch a lot. I don't know if it felt very real to me. This is a real family. This is like a real routine they go through a lot. Absolutely. So Clark has a football tryout permission slip. He wants to join the team, promises he'll be careful, won't use his full abilities to cheat. Uh, but Jonathan says, no, it's too dangerous. Uh, something could happen in the heat of the game. Someone could find out about his abilities. So sorry. But no, Clark is very frustrated and he just walks out. I mean, he, he wants to be normal. And we're going to touch on that very shortly in depth. So he walks out only to find he's missed the school bus. This is, a, again, a callback to the Superman movie. So now we get the dual introductions of Chloe Sullivan and Pete Ross on the school bus. Pete made a bet with Chloe that Clark would miss the bus, noting that if Clark was any slower, he'd be moving backwards. 
Uh, we then get a shot of the new Welcome to Kansas billboard again. Now it says Meteor Cap of the World. Clark decides just to run to school and takes off with a flash and very quickly actually passes the butts. Uh, we get an establishing shot of Smallville High, which is a building that will feature prominently in the early seasons of Smallville. Fun fact, this is the Vancouver Technical Secondary Public School in Vancouver. Hmm. Pete asks Chloe if she has a date to the dance, and she says not yet. He suggests they go together, but quickly clarifies not as a date-date thing, but as a friend-friend thing. I really like this as a nod, as we find out later in the series, that Pete has a crush on Chloe, and has for a long time. And even here in the pilot, we get that, you want to go with me, but not as a not as a date. I just That felt very real and very high school to me. I think their entire interactions, uh, as they're introduced, uh, really are very... They're very synergistic is probably the best way of putting it. They, they feel like they're real people that have a real relationship. And it's another nod or another indication of uh, such a, of what a great job David Nutter's done as a director. What a great job everybody involved uh, with this Smallville pilot has done because it is, uh, it's very familial. It's very, it's very, it's very warm. It's very, natural it doesn't feel unnatural at all and you know i think this is a staple of the cw and the types of shows that they have that we have a show that has aliens it's later we'll have witches magic superpowers but there's also the these are two people who know each other and they kind of like each other but they're afraid to talk about their feelings you know high school drama and i think that's a really nice blend i mean that's what smallville is it's superman in high school and i just Want to comment that I think they did a very good job. There's a short conversation where Pete mentions trying out for football. Clark has to explain that he can't. Um, we have that, again, one of those first cognitive dissonant moments where Chloe kind of suggests, like, what are you crazy trying to sign up for football? You'll get killed. Not realizing that Clark Kent is six foot three and made chiseled for marble. Uh, but Pete explains that mostly they're just trying to get away from being the scarecrow. They don't want to be chosen, and they figure that if they are able to join the football team, that the football team would not choose one of them to be the scarecrow since homecoming is coming up. So here we get this first scene of Lana Lang. She's now all grown up, and, and the girl Clark has had a crush on since he was seven. Uh, he decides to walk off towards her. Pete and Chloe make another remark about how he's going to make a fool of himself. And yes, of course... Within, as soon as he gets within a few feet of her, he sort of stumbles to the ground, dropping all of his books. Uh, Lana bends down to help him, and we get a great view of her necklace, which is a piece of the meteor rock that killed her parents. I would say that's kind of dark. Uh, it's also kryptonite, not that anyone will call that for a long time. And so Clark doesn't know that, but this is the reason why he's never able to get close to her. And then we get a scene where Lana hands him one of his books. It's the portable Nietzsche. And we get our first of almost too much on the nose dialogue when Lana asks, so what are you, man or Superman? And Clark says, I haven't figured it out yet. It's so cute, though. It is cute. <laughs> but I think this is the defining thesis of the entire show. Are you man or Superman? I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. Because almost every episode, and certainly many, many episodes, is Clark fighting against his destiny and heritage to become Superman, which is at war with his desire to just be a normal kid and do normal things. He wants to date Lana. He wants to play football. He wants to not have to lie to all of his friends about who he is and what he does. And I think that is one of the main sources of drama in all 10 seasons 
is is Clark man or is he Superman? I agree with that. I think it's interesting, or I'm, I'm, I don't think it's interesting. I am interested in seeing how that plays out uh, once they get a little older. Because something I didn't mention before, I got into Smallville because of my parents, but I never finished it. Ooh. So this is going to be fantastic. I'm looking forward to finishing it and, and doing all of these episodes. Obviously, not doing the podcast for all of them because it's a guest co-host. But I'm just, I'm really interested in watching them all and seeing how it expands and evolves. So just couch that in the back of your mind as we go forward this episode and others. All the times that Clark is at war with himself on that term. I think it's going to come up over and over and over again. So now we're introduced to Whitney, who's Lana's current boyfriend. Got a letterman jacket on. Turns out he's the quarterback of the football team. And um he's not openly condescending to Clark, but even here there's a little bit of why are you talking to her? I I I feel that as the audience when he's talking to Clark, but it's not overt. Though it will be soon. Uh so we quick cut. Now we're inside the school and we see the same young man who was tied up as a scarecrow all those years ago when Lex was in the cornfield, but he does not look a day older. He's looking into a school trophy case at a picture of three football players. He punches through the protective glass and picks up that picture saying, it's payback time. We now cut to an exterior shot of a factory of some sort with a sign, Luther Corp Fertilizer Plant Number 3, and there's a sort of light blue grayish colored Porsche driving up. Lex Luther. Pulls up in front of the plant, gets out, surveys everything around him, and says to the to no one or to the camera, "Thanks, Dad." Clearly, he's not happy to be here. He's back where we first saw him. He's back at that same fertilizer plant now owned by Luther Corp. He's back in Smallville. Presumably, has not been here since that time as a kid, and it doesn't look like he's here by choice. So. How do you feel about this introduction to Lex, who's an iconic character, this very quick Porsche, Kansas, thanks, Dad. Does that work for you? You know, it does and it doesn't. I think it works for the show. I don't know that it works for me. I think it works for the show more than it works for me. There's there's a lot that's kind of between Lex and, and Clark. Honestly, that was uh, when I was when I was watching uh, Smallville, that was always my favorite relationship uh, because I really liked this. Um, external and internal conflicts that they had with each other. This desire to both be friends and also to be competitive in ways that are hard to express, uh, both in, in words and, and within the show itself. So in terms of this introduction, I'm just going to say that it works for the show, but I'm not necessarily a big fan myself. I, I would just echo that. Like, I don't really think it's a great introduction, but it's what the show needed and it works well enough that I don't mind it. But to your point, I agree. I think the dynamic of Clark's relationships, his relationship with Lana and his relationship with Chloe is interesting through the lens of, of Lex. You know, eventually it's, it's several seasons. And I guess we should say spoilers if we haven't already. We're going to talk about the whole show at some point. But eventually Chloe knows Clark's power. And she becomes his greatest ally. She helps him. She covers for him with other people. They work together to protect, you know, people and fight crime. And it's a great, solid friendship that he has, which just is in contrast to could he have had that with Lana? If he had just been honest with Lana from the beginning, could they have had 
a great relationship. When you look at it with Lex, Lex wants to be Clark's friend. And you get the feeling that Lex, he's very powerful, he's rich, he's young, he's handsome. But as and it becomes very clear later, he doesn't have really many any friends and ever has. If Clark had been able to be honest with Lex, I think Lex could have became become a great and true friend. But because Clark lied and Lex knows he's being secretive about something, that that stirs that part of Lex, the part of Lex that Lex doesn't like, and makes that come forward and eventually turns them into you know rivals. But I really think the show tells us if Clark had been honest, Lex could have been his friend and ally. I, I agree, and I think uh, I'm this. I'm going to jump ahead just because this is this is kind of appropriate for this particular conversation. But there's a couple of lines that I found really telling in this in this uh, pilot that go to what you're talking about. One uh, the the next one of the next times that we see Lex and Clark together, Lex makes a comment to the effect of. Nothing is going to get in the way of our friendship. And it's on the nose and it's a little bit stilted, but it's also like right to what you're talking about. Lex desperately wants somebody to truly be his friend. And he has picked Clark for that. But the other thing that I think goes to your point is there's a moment after the confrontation with the Freak of the Week, right after the confrontation with the Freak of the Week, where Clark... No, it's right before. Take it back. Well, it's during. Anyway, the point is, during the con- during the conflict between Clark and, and the Freak of the Week, Clark makes a comment, what happened to you is my fault. Mm-hmm. And I think that also echoes these themes that you're talking about as we go forward uh, through the series in terms of how relationships evolve for Clark. You know, there is some responsibility that goes on Clark's shoulders and should go on Clark's shoulders for some of the choices that he makes in terms of who he confides in and who he's honest to and things like that. Yeah, I think the show I think the show is smart in the way it portrays that because I do think the show is showing us Clark probably could have been honest with Lana and it would have been great. But because Clark learns in this episode as we're about to find out again that he's an alien that he came the day of the meter shower, when he sees that picture of Lana on the wall of weird, and again, we're jumping ahead, that's the sticking point. Now, it isn't, I'm different, Lana won't love me. It's, oh my God, I'm the reason Lana's parents are dead. Lana can never love me. And those aren't the same thing. They're they're similar. They They connect. And I can see how Clark would be conflicted. And I think, I mean, that's the easy answer why Clark didn't just tell her later on, early on in the series when it becomes almost obviously apparent that she knows something's up. Uh, but I think it's interesting that they, they have these different avenues. Is it, is it just a secret? Is it that people will exploit it? Is it that people won't be able to, to love him or look at him the same way? Or is it the fact that there's actually this second level secret that he, again, we can argue, is he the actual cause? Cause he didn't choose to come to earth. He didn't choose when and where he came to earth. He was sent here by his parents. He had no choice in the matter. So does he have any culpability? I would say no, but Clark being a 14-year-old kid, I can see why he would assume the mantle that that he is responsible. And that's a really good point in terms of, you know, the culpability point that you've just made. I, I think that that's worth keeping in the back of your mind as well. Uh, so then we had a quick cut. It's after classes and the football team is practicing. Lana is cheering. Clark is watching like a real super creeper from the stands. Uh, and Pete is ready to try out for football. And I actually think 
Pete here, Sam Jones, does a really good little bit of acting with the football uniform. It's a little bit too big and it's not fitting right. And it's very comedic, but I actually think it's really well done. It's, 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 it's a sort of a quick but standout moment for me that I really liked that characterization. He was so excited, but clearly was not up to the task. And Clark, who was supposed to be his friend to be there with him, can't do it, has to back out and leaves. Uh, so then we get a quick cut back to Lex now driving his Porsche, presumably away from work, probably too fast. He gets a phone call, pulls out his phone, so he's not really watching the road because he's a jerk. And he misses the fact that this sort of, I don't know, like a roll of wire fell off a truck in front of him. He notices it too late, has to swerve, and accidentally rams directly into Clark, who was standing on a bridge, sending both of them through the guardrail and into the river below. Uh, nitpickers will notice that there's actually no damage to the car uh, as it's going off the bridge, even though there will be later. But myself, I think this is a pretty effective looking stunt because it really looks like Tom Welling just got hit with the freaking car when they go both go flying off that bridge. So I was impressed with the execution, even though I do have the nitpick that why didn't they hit the car with a sledgehammer first? I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, uh, again, going, uh, we're just going to praise David Nutter. This is the David Nutter praise show. Um, but again, kind of going back to, uh, those technical aspects of, of this pilot, it, it was really well done. And this is one of those examples that it just kind of, it doesn't look as bad as it could have. And <laughs> yeah. it looks pretty good, you know, um, for the time and everything else. Um, so Michael. Yes. Would you say that Clark is responsible for this vehicle crash? So that's going to get into a very weighty debate because no, he is not responsible for the crash, but he also neglected to use his abilities, which would have been able to prevent it. So the question is, is inaction causation? You know, that's, that's a, uh, that's a great question. Um, it's entirely not what I meant, <laughs> but, okay. but, but it is, but it is a good question. Uh, I think in this particular moment, uh, I think he's absolved completely, uh, because the look on his face, and this is some really good facial acting by Tom Welling, the look on his face before he's struck is one of complete surprise. And I think at this particular moment, Clark is not, uh, in a mode of, I can always use my powers. Um, I think in this particular moment, there's a lot of his dad saying, don't show anybody, don't tell anybody. I think there's a lot of that that's still instilled in him. And so the idea that he could even use his powers, I don't think even occurs to him at this moment. Fair. So I see the way you were going. I took it a little bit, a little bit of a tangent, almost like I swerved suddenly and derailed the conversation. That's right. You're just like Lex Luthor. That <laughs> That's right. So we cut to underwater. Lex is unconscious. This will be num- ding number one, unconscious. Uh, mm-hmm. Clark rips open the hood of the car to rescue him. We cut to him taking Lex ashore, giving him CPR, saving his life, uh, cementing their friendship, and uh, which will be a source of drama for most of the series. Uh, but even so, the first thing Lex says is, I thought I hit you. It wasn't, thank you for saving me. Oh, my God, are you okay? It was, wait, I thought I hit you. And then Clark responds sort of like he just now realized, well, if you did, I'd be dead. And I think this is an important important moment because, again, Clark doesn't know he's an alien. He doesn't know why he's different. He just knows that he's really fast. He's really strong. I think we can assume that probably he lives on a farm at some point in time. He probably 
should have gotten cut and didn't. So he probably knows he's got hardened skin, but he doesn't know the full range of his powers. And then he suddenly is like, wait, I just got hit by a car going like 60 miles an hour and I feel fine. And I think that's a an interesting point. And I think that's what directly leads into this confrontation we're going to get to after the break where he confronts his dad with how powerful he really is. And then that leads to the the reveal. I agree. Uh, so we get uh, so another commercial break. Uh, again, thank you, Hulu. Uh, Hulu doesn't sponsor this. I should keep giving them free praise, I guess. Uh, so, so we see Clark wrapped in a red cape-like blanket. And we will see things like this throughout the series where uh, capes and just the color scheme. He's always wearing like a red jacket and a blue shirt, vice versa. But he's sitting there, you know, basically it's like a like the paramedics put it on him. Jonathan Kitt shows up. He's all upset. He wants to know who caused the accident. Of course, Lex steps in and says, it was me, tries to apologize. Jonathan has nothing to do with it. Lex pleads, is there anything I can do to make it up to you? And Clark, or excuse me, and Jonathan replies in what becomes an iconic and important line later in the series, drive slower. So now we cut to nighttime. Clark is in the barn loft, which is his homey fortress of solitude. Uh, and he's using his telescope to look at the stars. Actually, no, he's looking at Lana like a creep. <laughs> he sees Whitney sneaking up and for a second he's alarmed, but then he just gets sad when he realizes Whitney's, you know, talking to Lana where he wants to be. Uh, we have this little scene between Lana and Whitney where we learn Whitney doesn't want to be a high school quarterback wannabe like so many other people. He wants to get out of Smallville. He wants to do more. He heard that there might be some college scouts coming to the game, so he's excited to, to you know do well. So Lana gives him her necklace as a good luck charm, which becomes super important later. Uh, next, we cut to see our former scarecrow confronting one of the jocks. Or, I'm sorry, before, did you? Yeah, yeah. Before we cut, I just want to make one uh, quick uh, comment on what we talked about. And you've already you've already commented twice, and and I think that you're 100 percent correct. There is an aspect of Clark in this pilot that is super creepy. Yes. And what's interesting to me is that there's a lot. I, I have not seen the movie Burn Bright, but it's no. It's no secret that it's basically an alternative Superman oh, yeah. origin story. I, yeah, where it's, he goes it's evil Superman. The end. Stop. Full stop. Have you seen it? Yes. Okay. So is there, there is also a similar type of scene. Is there not where he's looking at or watching another girl from a distance? Similar to the way Clark is spying on Lana. Is that correct? Similar. He, he has an infatuation with a young girl, which makes sense for the age of his character, who I will say actually looks like a 14 year old kid and not like Tom Welling. Yay. But he doesn't know how to express those feelings and his mom and dad, adoptive mom and dad, misinterpreting the whole situation gives some really bad advice. And I think that leads the kid into thinking that it's okay for him to pursue uh, this creepy action. So it's definitely similar. I think in the Smallville, it's played more for trying to show how lonely Clark feels, how he's, again, his solitude, the fortress of solitude in the barn, that the only way he can be with the woman he loves is from the an end of a telescope. But in 2020, this is definitely creepy and unacceptable behavior. Yeah. And it, and what, and there's a moment. You know, for the most part, like you said, it's, it really does, uh, play into the loneliness. It plays into, uh, there's a great, you know, imagination scene at the end of the, at the end of the show. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, for the most part, it's, it is fairly pure and, 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 and harmless. 
But there is one shot when he looks, he's in the spyglass, Lana and uh, Whitney kiss, and he moves his head so that it's not uh, obscured by the spyglass, by the telescope. And there's a look on his face that stays for about one second. And that look is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And then it's gone. Yeah, I, I agree. It's not something I necessarily put in my notes, but I do know the scene you're talking about exactly. He does look like angry and yes. possessive. Uh, yes. And, you know, again, those are things that will happen with Clark where he has all the power to get everything he wants, but he refuses to do it. Now, does that make him a hero? Not necessarily. No. But when you try to put yourself in the mind of, yes, he's a 15-year-old kid full of hormones who has a crush on the girl next door who just happens to be dating the school jock who probably, again, this is 2001, he's a jerk, mm -hmm. if not overtly, he's a jerk. I think it's normal for him to have those types of feelings and emotions, and let's just all be glad that he doesn't act on them like they did in uh, the uh, the other movie. I agree, but I think it's it's also worth saying that it's a testament to this show and the complexity of this show that they allowed even that moment to exist. I mean, Smallville's a great show, uh, but this pilot in particular, like I said, it's it's truly one of the best pilots I've ever seen, and and this particular moment is a testament to that that they're willing to add complexity in the first episode that they give you to the characters in terms of their emotions and their emotional reactions and their relationships. It's, it's really pretty amazing. So next we see our former scarecrow confronting one of the jocks who strung him up all those years ago and using electric powers and what appears to be super strength. Cause he, he absolutely picks that guy up and holds him against the wall and apparently kills him, but turns out, nope, just coma. So Clark comes home the next day from school to find a brand new truck complete with a bow uh, a gift from Lex for saving him. But of course, Jonathan refuses to be indebted in any way to a Luther and tells him he can't keep it. Clark gets all grumpy and he's going to hump, you know, huff off and he's stomping up the stairs. And Jonathan says, you know, I know you're upset, but it's normal. And this just Clark snaps normal. So he walks over and turns on a wood chipper and says, does this look normal? And sticks his arm and hand down into it. Let's be honest, likely destroying the blades. Clark, you're an asshole. <laughs> he is. You know how expensive, you know how expensive yes. it is to run a farm? I mean, Clark is an asshole in that moment. <laughs> and, and they talk all the time about the, the, the money problems they have. Like that's a part of the drama of the show is that the farm is constantly on the verge of going under. The only reason it doesn't is because Clark can do the job, you know, like 15 people's worth of work because he's of his abilities. And a wood chipper is an expensive piece of machinery. Very likely this was a rental. This is probably not something they keep all the time. Definitely lost the deposit. So, Clark, <laughs> think about things before you use your powers. This will not be, this will not be the last time Clark uses his powers irresponsibly. So, so Jonathan rushes over and pulls Clark's arm out and he seems just as shocked that Clark is completely injured as Clark was earlier when he got hit by the car. So I think Jonathan too was not fully aware of exactly how powerful Clark has gotten. Now, I don't know if this is something where they just, they probably don't take him out and shoot him with shotguns every now and then to see what happens. So they don't know the gauge. You know, maybe when he was five, he fell off the swing and didn't break the skin. But this is like amazing. This is more than he would have comprehended. And there's one of my absolute favorite moments in the show. Clark stomps off 
And Jonathan looks over his shoulder and he looks at Martha. And there's this really short scene where they look at each other. There's no words. It's just expression. But it is super clear what's being conveyed. I think Annette is amazing with just literally a look. Jonathan, you know, uh, Johnson and everything nods his head in agreement. And then we move on to that scene that we started the show with where Jonathan finally says, you're not from Earth. This is why you're special. You are, in fact, an actual alien. We get our first glimpse of Kryptonian writing, uh, which is on the key that goes to the ship, which will become important later. And Clark dashes off to be alone in a graveyard for some reason. I'm not sure why that's where he went to. But if he didn't, we wouldn't have the next scene with Lana Lang, which is, again, a great scene. It's a great scene, but it's kind of weird, isn't it? It, it is kind of weird. So, so we go through the scene and then we'll circle back to it. So we see Lana getting off of a horse and it becomes part of her character. We learn she's an accomplished writer. Uh, so she's by this little small graveyard. She comes here to speak to her parents, but she finds Clark. Uh, and there's a moment where he positions himself perfectly so that he's like silhouetted by this angel with wings statuary in the graveyard. So it looks like he has wings. And he has a conversation with Lana. He goes over. Lana tells him, hey, you know, I talked to my parents. And they start having a conversation. And again, this this had a it, it really walked along a, a, a thin line, I think, of becoming very disturbing and weird. But Clark buys in and he also starts talking to the parents. And I actually think it kind of becomes cute, though. There is this one very unnecessary gay joke in 2001. But what I think is interesting is in the, the show, Lana gave her necklace to Whitney, so she's not wearing her necklace. So for the first time ever, he's able to have a conversation with her. He doesn't know why he wasn't in the past. She doesn't know why he wasn't in the past. But in this moment, they're able to talk, and they have a great conversation, and they connect. And I also think it's interesting that throughout the show, Clark will obviously come to people in times of need and rescue them. But here, the first meaningful interaction that Clark and Lana have is her helping him come out of his distress state. He was in, not in danger, he wasn't going to die, but he was the one in trouble. He was the one that was upset, and Lana saves him. And I think that's kind of nice. It is. It's a really good moment. Uh, everything about that scene is really good in terms of the interactions between them and the way it's it's framed. Like I said, the only thing that's weird about it is that it's in a cemetery. It, it's just the setting is strange. The The dialogue with the dead parents is strange. But it, it moves from strange into some something that's cute but also deep and meaningful. And again, testament to the actors, much better than it could have been. Yes. I mean, it could have been a really horrible scene. Uh, but, but both Tom Welling and uh, Kristen Kruick in that moment really buy into the ideas that are on the page uh, and being filmed. And that works. So uh, again, fun fact here, Kristen, I think it's Kruick. That's how I pronounce it. Um, originally passed on Lana uh, thinking she was going to be a sort of a ditzy high, high school cheerleader girl and didn't want to do that part. And they showed her this, this scene, this is the graveyard scene. And that's what sold her on taking the part. And she was the first actress cast. So she was the first cast member signed to the show and she signed up based off of this scene on the, in the pilot. That's really cool. Also, I'm sure I am completely butchering her name. So yeah. all, all apologies to you, Kristen. Uh, I, I just don't know how to say it. <laughs> 
so then we see them, they finish their, you know, their meeting in the, in the graveyard. Clark walks her back home. It's a nice touching little moment. Clark does not notice Whitney, who's back on Lana's porch. Again, this was set up earlier that Whitney sometimes comes to her house unannounced. But Whitney definitely notices Clark, and there's a look of, I don't like you talking to my girl. So then we cut to Clark. He's at the mansion. So this is the Luther mansion. Uh, becomes, again, it's a staple scene uh, or a setting that we will have throughout the series. He's given the truck back. So this is our first Clark-Lex conversation where Lex is talking weirdly over his shoulder. But at least in this one, there's a mirror that Lex is looking into. So he does see Clark over his shoulder. So the staging works a little bit better than in the future. But it's it's even here in the pilot that Lex weirdly has conversations with people when they're behind him. I don't know why. This is why in the questions at the top um, about people going a long, just long way to have a short conversation. Since Clark's given the truck back, I imagine he drove the truck there. And then he, there's a mention that he, he had to shimmy through the bars. So in my head, Kanan, Clark drove the truck to the mansion, parked it outside the gates, and he gives the keys back to Lex. So it wasn't like he walked all the way to the mansion. Now, with Clark, he could super speed, so it's not a big deal. But if Clark couldn't super speed, all the times in the future that he just shows up at the mansion, kind of weird. Yes. I also, again, there's there's this weird cognitive dissonance I have with the show on sometimes because the show says that Clark is a freshman, so he should be 14, 15 years old. But it's heavily implied he either drives or can drive, so he should be at least 16, but he's a freshman. So, I, I mean, and they, they do this a lot with things where it, it's very flexible based off the, the needs of the plot. And this is a minor quibble, but is he driving the truck or is he not driving the truck? I don't know. Well, I'll help you with that uh, just for a moment. I'll give you this idea. Okay. You know, he works on a farm and his dad's a farmer. So maybe he has a hardship license. Oh. So you get that, I think, as young as 14. Okay. Well, so there you go. It's possible. See, that's why I invited you on because you would. Try <laughs> so their next scene is the scene of the jock being taken, uh, who's in a coma, being taken out of the, like the auto body shop he was in. Pete and Chloe are there. Chloe notes that this is the third jock this week. Clearly, someone has been targeting them. Uh, Pete spies a creepy dude, but this one's not Clark. Chloe takes a picture. So they super speed through the investigative process. Like in later episodes, there will be multiple steps in trying to figure out who did something. Basically, Pete and Chloe put this together in one two-minute scene. We find them showing Clark a picture of the old yearbook that has this guy. His name's Jeremy. Uh, they deduce that he has powers and he's come back for revenge. Apparently it was a power outage. He's been in a coma. That's why he doesn't has an age and he has these powers. And we have another pivotal scene in the pilot where Pete's like, you need to show Clark this. So Coley shows him the wall of weird and talks about that. There's been just all these very unusual situations that have happened in Smallville. And she thinks they're related to the meteor shower. Here we see, again, a wall of weird is a bunch of newspaper clippings of odd things. And I didn't freeze frame and call them out. I'm sure there's people online that have done that. I'll I find a link. I'll throw it in the show notes. But one in particular we see is the time cover with Lana in that very cute but sad, distressed face from earlier in the episode. And that's where Clark's like, wait, I did this. I'm responsible and rushes out. All right. So wall of weird is great. But I want to take us back for uh, just a moment to the moment before the introduction of the Wall of Weird, okay. whenever the two, uh, Chloe and Pete, 
are uh, talking to Clark about who Jeremy is and, and, and how he fits into this whole thing. This is a technical thing, but this is really cool. That whole scene is one shot. In addition to being one shot, it's shot on a moving dolly. It goes around all three characters. The entire scene, it continues to move. You know, I talked about how, you know, David Nutter does some things that are really, I would say, ballsy. That's a ballsy thing to do. Classically, whenever you have any kind of conversation, most of the time it's static. It's shot and reaction shot, shot and reaction shot. Doing this the way he does it, having them staged, having their movement staged in such a way that he's able to get the, the camera in front of people when they have reactions, when their faces are showing what their reactions are, is really, really good directing. It's, it's, it's fantastic. When I talk about, or at the very beginning when I said that this is something that even directors of films sometimes don't do that they could, did you ever see um, Red Dragon with Edward Norton in it's one of the Hannibal Lecter movies, but it's uh, kind of the preview one. I I believe I may have watched it a long time ago, but I don't recall anything about it if I did. I, I know the name, but I don't. I can't think of it. Okay, well, it's it's not necessarily a good film, okay. and I can't remember who directed <laughs> it. Um, but the first, the one of the first scenes is Edward Norton talking to Hannibal Lecter, um, to Anthony Hopkins, and it is a scene that's supposed to, you know, raise a bunch of tension in the audience. And when he's, when it's directed, it's directed in that classical style of conversation, reaction, um, you know, shot of, of the conversation, shot of the reaction, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The camera's static. The scene is maybe a little bit, you know, maybe it gets your, uh, your nervousness going a little bit, but it could have been so much more if he'd have just put that camera on a dolly and had it go around this circle, circle these two guys, because that movement, draws you in, makes you part of that scene, and in addition to that, makes you uncomfortable. It makes you really uncomfortable. And, and right before you see the wall of weird, right before they walk in, if you watch it again, uh, you'll note that, you know, yourself, you start to feel a little bit, not necessarily uncomfortable, but on edge. Like you are, you are getting ready for a reveal. You know it's coming. You can feel it. And that's in part because of that movement of the camera and how that scene is shot, and how it draws you in. And it's, I, I really can't say enough about it, but I'm just going to say it's one of the best technical scenes in any pilot I've ever seen. It's better than scenes in some movies that I've seen. It's really, really, really well done. So what you're saying is, David Nutter, good choice for your pilot. Amen. Hire him for all your pilots. He's the guy. He is the guy. Uh, so Clark runs, runs off. He's upset with this now new weight on his shoulders that he just learned, hey, I'm an alien. Oh, also, hey, the day I arrived, I killed the parents of the lady I love and all this other weird stuff is happening. It may also be related to me. Not a good time for Whitney to show up and sort of call him on the whole Lana thing. Clark decides to stand up for himself, hauls back like he's going to punch Whitney, which we know will kill him because he's Kal-El. Luckily, I guess, question mark, Whitney now has the necklace on, Lana's necklace. Strangely, it didn't affect Clark until the point he saw it. Again, we'll get into that later. Uh, so <laughs> Clark becomes weak, falls down, and Whitney notices that there's something about the necklace that bothers Clark. I don't know why. This this does not make any sense unless you know that it's kryptonite and Clark is, super, is a alien. But he's like, oh, 
you this necklace i don't i can't remember the exact words but he basically says something like oh you, this necklace is bothering you so whitney rips the necklace off like an asshole it's on a chain <laughs> you have to unhook it you just broke the thing your girlfriend gave you as a good luck charm and then gave it as a like a cruel punishment to this guy she thinks is kind of weird who lives next door whitney full-on jerk at this point I really like this exchange uh, because what Whitney says is something to the effect of, oh, you like Lana's necklace? Well, that's as close as you'll ever get to her. And then he takes it off or rips it off, as you said, as an asshole and sticks it around his neck. And it's it's just a nice uh, – I mean, he's an asshole in that moment. But it's a nice uh, emphasis on how big of an asshole he is. Well, it's also very short-sighted because, like, where does he see this going? Like, hey, Whitney, great job winning the game. Where's my necklace? Um – well, you see, I mean, there's, there was no forethought whatsoever on exactly. the end game of this situation. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So then we get the, the iconic image. This is the image of like probably most associated with Smallville. It's on the cover of the season one box set. And that is Tom Welling tied up like the square, scarecrow again, tied very loosely attributed because his ropes are literally looped over his arms, but he has kryptonite necklace. So it makes sense down in his boxer briefs with a red S painted on his chest, Lana's necklace around his neck, glowing faintly green because of the kryptonite. So Jeremy is now out there. So Clark's already there. Jeremy comes out there and he's like, you know, I thought putting those three guys in a coma would stop this, but apparently not. So now I'm just going to kill everyone in Smallville High. Great plan B. No crazy escalation there. Fantastic plan B. Yeah, fantastic plan B. Uh, Stop three people to keep people from getting beat up. Nope. Kill everyone. Got it. So he decides to leave. Uh, he definitely insinuates he's going to kill everyone in Smallville High. As he's leaving the cornfield, which we can, we've established multiple times, is right next to Fertilizer Plane 3. Uh, Lex is again lo- leaving there, sees Jeremy, has a brief flashback. He's like, wait, isn't that the guy I saw all those years ago? So he decides to inspect the cornfield. Sure, why not? He finds Clark, um, unties him. Clark falls to the ground. And this dislodges the necklace. And you know why it does? Because Whitney broke the chain like an asshole. If he'd have just put it around his neck with the clasp, it'd still be there. But no, he didn't. His fault. So Clark instantly feels better, gets up, takes off. Lex wants to take him to a hospital. He refuses, disappears, of course, super speeds. And now we're ready for our confrontation. We're back at Smallville High. Jeremy is messing with the sprinkler system. He's going to turn them on and flood the school or just get everybody good and wet. And then he's going to use his electric powers to fry everyone. Clark shows up and basically tells him, you know, hey, don't don't do that. Clark openly uses his powers in front of someone that's not his girlfriend or the girl he likes with absolutely no idea that there could be repercussions if this person survives. They get into a confrontation. Uh, at some point, Jeremy gets in a truck and rams Clark and then drives him through a brick wall. This is our fifth truck destroyed in this episode or fifth vehicle, I should say, uh, the, the truck starts to get flooded with water from a busted pipe. Once it fills up, Jeremy basically short circuits himself. Clark comes over, rescues him from the flooding truck, and Jeremy has gotten memory wiped. He has amnesia. He doesn't remember anything that happened since the time he was put in the coma years ago. Clark's secret continues to be safe. Fantastic. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there's a few things that are interesting in, in those two scenes that you described. I really... Going back to the cornfield, 
The one thing I really like about that scene more than anything is the expression on Lex Luthor's face when he picks up that necklace. It's a really inquisitive and interesting expression. It's a really inquisitive and interesting expression. And it kind of goes to where that character is going to go in the future in terms of trying to investigate Clark and figure out what exactly is going on with this dude. You know, I didn't put it in my notes, and and I don't know that it's um, textual, but it might be subtextual, that many, many times we will see kryptonite in a neutral state. It's like a dull green color. Mm-hmm. Whenever Clark is nearby, it lights up and becomes a bright neon green. So when Lex shows up, the necklace is bright green because it's around Clark's mm-hmm. neck. But once it falls off and he picks it up, it's now back to that dull green. Do you think there's any subtextual that Lex noticed that the necklace changed color? Or was it just like, it's really weird that there's this necklace here and it has a broken chain like some asshole ripped it off of himself? I, I kind of think the subtext that is being established in that moment is going back to kind of the uh, the destiny of both Clark and Lex to be confrontational, to be, you know, antagonists toward each other. I, I think that that's really kind of what the subtext is, because it is the first time that we really have a moment where Lex is interacting with Kryptonite, and it comes at the cost of Clark being hurt or, or weakened by Kryptonite. I mean, I I think, honestly, I think that even in that moment, Lex is starting to put a little bit together. It's like, all right, he was like he was going to die up there and he fell down and here's this necklace and I'm looking at it and he just ran off like he's perfectly fine. What's up with this? I, I think that there is the beginning of some distrust, maybe the beginning of not even, not even necessarily, not even necessarily distrust, maybe more the beginning of the inquisitive side of Lex's personality, because Lex has a lot of different facets. It's one of the reasons that I really love that character. He goes through a lot of different changes and has a lot of different facets of his personality. But one of those is just pure inquisitiveness. Uh, and I think that that's maybe a moment that really goes to that, to that question of, huh, what's up? I totally agree with that. I think it's, um, it seems to me like Lex knows a lot more than he will admit that he knows early on. And he's just trying to prove it. Exactly. And, and, and at one point he just wants Clark to admit it. Like, I think if you were just to ask Lex, what's up with Clark? He would say he's clearly got some sort of meteor power. He doesn't know he's an alien, but he's meteor power, probably super strong. He's got a good heart, but he just wants Clark to admit to him. He wants to, he wants to tr- he be trusted. I agree completely. He wants to be the confidant. He, he, he's already said it. Nothing's going to get in the way of our friendship. He is just, he wants to be that confidant. And then, you know, from that scene going directly into the next scene, I think there's a lot of interesting subtext in those next, in that next scene, in the confrontation between Clark and, and Jeremy. You know, one of those things being that Clark, you know, says, what happened to you is my fault. And we talked about that earlier. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that right after that, there's this exchange about destiny where Jeremy says, well, I have a destiny. And Clark's response is, so do I, or I do too, or something to that effect. And it's almost like the first time that he's really kind of accepting the mantle, not necessarily of Superman, but the mantle of being able to affect positive change in this situation and stop this guy as opposed to just letting him do whatever he's going to do. 
And I think that's a microcosm to that thesis I talked about at the beginning, man versus Superman. Here he's Superman. He's super heroic. He saves the day. But in return, he doesn't get to go to the dance. He doesn't get to see Lana. He he indulges in one and denies himself the other. And I don't think indulge is the right word. He because it's a weight of responsibility. He he what's a good word for that? When he has to do something, he's obliged to do one, but it denies him the other. Yeah, or he engages, engages or something to that effect. But and and the other the other thing that's interesting about that, going to what you just said, that that one comes at the cost of the other. Is that when Jeremy comes to and he has no clue, doesn't remember what happened, doesn't remember that Clark, that he ran over Clark, uh, should have killed him. Yep. Uh, and, and doesn't remember any of that. He says, Jeremy says, I want to go home. And I love that line because I think that that line comes from Jeremy, but it's applicable to Clark. I think that you have a line spoken by one character that could mentally be completely echoed by the second character in that scene. Uh, and it's a really nice little moment. Well, I also think there's a parallel between Jeremy and Lex. Both of them hit Clark with a car. Both of them, then there's an element of water. Both of them should have probably killed Clark. Uh, now the memory loss throws a little bit of a wrinkle, but Lex is immediately inquisitive. Like what happened? Who are you? Why didn't you die? And Jeremy's like, I just, want to go home like he has no inquisitive nature about trying to uncover the mystery like he just in his mind he just woke up doesn't know where he's at he's in a car it's full of water there's a guy in front of him that looks like he just got through through a wall doesn't care about any of that he just wants to go home yeah it's it's an interesting lex could never never be that way he never wants to just go home he has to dig Absolutely. It's a, it's almost like a divergent path, right? Like, uh, one of them took the path less, less, uh, uh, chosen or whatever the, the poem is. I can't remember. Less traveled by. There you go. Less traveled. Uh, Jeremy took the path less traveled, maybe, or maybe, maybe Lex did, but either way, that's, that's the moment that they diverge. And that's pretty interesting, uh, correlation. And I'm going to harp on this a lot that Clark openly ex- displays his powers all the time to people other than Lana, but, in truth, it's because there's an urgent need. Now, I'm, we can definitely argue about the effectiveness of Clark using his powers. And, you know, he does what he needs to do because the show needs him to do it. But if he actually had these abilities, he could very easily solve most of his problems with very little element or risk of getting caught. But that's, again, we're, that's a nitpick I don't want to get to. But he won't tell Lana his secret because to do so would be something he wants so that he could have a relationship with Lana. But he will always show his powers if it's to save someone, even a stranger. And that is that man versus Superman. The man wants to be with Lana, but can't tell the secret. Superman will always do what's the right thing to do, even if it puts him in danger. I think that's completely correct. So this gets sorted out. We have a scene of again Clark creepily spying on Lana and Whitney, who apparently are the homecoming king, king and queen. They're kissing on the dance floor. And this is the first of many times Clark will save Lana and other people without them knowing it was him. Uh, we get a uh, cut back to Clark in his Fortress of Solitude in the barn loft. And Lana shows up. And there's this very sweet little moment where she says, I didn't see you at the dance. I saved you a dance. So she comes in and, and they do the, like a really quick slow dance. But it's not real. It's a fantasy. He looks up. She's gone. He hears cars honking. He looks over and he can see Lana actually be being dropped off 
by her friends after the dance. And then we have the first of many music cues perfectly reflecting our characters' thoughts and feelings by everything from Lifehouse playing over the closing credits. Absolutely. End pilot. Absolutely. That and that that uh that music cue is perfect. It's on the nose, but it's still perfect. I think it it kicks in. I think what's what's really clear in the lyrics is uh, nobody else can ever know. And that's just a a great way to end uh, this first, you know, episode to end this pilot. I think it's really good. Yeah, again, we've we've already given David Nutter lots of credit. Uh, He deserves it. The actors and actresses in the show deserve it. The writers deserve it. It's a very good pilot. If you like Superman, there's so much here to get involved with. If you're just a fan of teen angsty drama, there's a lot here to get involved with. I mean, the secret could be a thousand other things, but you're setting up this this uh, situation where one character likes another but can't be honest with them. You have this other character who has a dark past and could be an ally, could be uh, an enemy, depending on how the things goes. You have your supporting characters, which I think it just it's sort of like a universal storytelling process. But it does a lot of things very quickly. It introduces all the characters, obviously. It sets up the dynamics. Clark loves Lana, can't tell her. Whitney is with Lana, doesn't like Clark. Chloe and Pete are his good friends. They will work with him to solve mysteries that are going to keep coming up with all these different meteor freaks as they're come to be known. Uh, Ma and Pa Kent will dispense wisdom. And Lex will do his best to try to be a friend. But there's always a tinge of menace behind everything, particularly if he's rebuffed. Like if he tries to make a, a, a an expression of friendship and it isn't accepted, he doesn't always react well. And I just think that's what this show will be for many, many, many seasons. We're going to see that just sort of move around and swish together. There'll be some changes. Sometimes, you know, obviously characters grow and change and some leave the show and everything. But but that pilot gives you the roadmap of the entire series. I think so. The pilot encapsulates it all. It's, uh, you know, I don't know how many times we're going to say it's a great pilot, but it's a great pilot. (laughs) And this ends our pilot episode. Hopefully we did anywhere near as good a job as Dave Nutter and the cast and crew did on the first pilot, the pilot episode of Smallville. So Alan, thank you for joining me. Please. we, We don't have a Patreon for the show, but if you would like to support us, Go give us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. If you listen to this one and there's a way to recognize it, please do so. Tell your friends. Uh, we should have a Twitter account and Facebook group page. Go join there. We're going to be asking some questions about the show and trying to get some conversation going. So that's what you can do to help us. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I host another podcast. It's all about role-playing games. So if you came to this episode of Smallville not knowing anything about that, maybe you came for whatever reason, there is a role-playing game about Smallville. Uh, it's, it's you know, a licensed product. It's based on the Cortex Plus system. If we get to 100 iTunes, USA iTunes ratings and reviews by the end of the season, season one, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change a little bit, 150 total reviews. So, because we do, we will likely get some from other countries. Our other podcast does. We have yeah, five or six from Canada and five or six from Australia. But if we get to 150 total or 100 U.S., between season one and season two, we're going to do a role play session. I will host the game. 
and I will get some of my guest co-hosts to fill in, and we are going to play a, a session of Smallville, the role-playing game, with Clark, Lana, Chloe, Pete, um, and Lax, of course, and trying to make a, something interesting and fun. So that's that's our bonus episode that will come about if we get to 200 ratings and reviews by the end of Season 1. Alan, any final words before we sign off? Are we doing the question stuff Oh, right yes. Now yeah, yes. I need you to All give right. me what, we'll what will be your question to ask our next guest. All right, so my question is going to be a little meta. Uh, okay. It's basically going to be this. If you had to change one casting aspect of this show, what would it be and why? So do you mean like changing actors? Uh, Absolutely, adding a yeah. role, Chang- getting, like not having a Chloe? Any of those things. Adding a role, changing actors, uh, deleting a role, any of those things. What would it be and why? So please stay tuned after the credits to hear the score on our Smallville scoreboard. But until next time, this has been Michael. And this has been Alan. And we'll see you in Smallville. Farm to Fable is a Smallville rewatch fan cast and is not officially affiliated with DC Comics, Warner Brothers Television, the CW Network, or any other owners of Smallville and or its related source materials. As such, these companies retain sole ownership of all symbols, images, names, logos, and other proprietary material related to Smallville. Our use of logos, images, names, likenesses, and sound clips are being used under the Fair Use Guidelines. Our logo was created by Michael Waldschlager II. You can find Michael on Twitter at LoserMLW. Farm to Fable is written, edited, and produced by me, Michael Ross with additional input by weekly co-hosts as credited in each episode's show notes. And now, let's check the scoreboard. Total number of vehicles wrecked, five. Three from meteor strikes, one ran off a bridge, one ran through a wall with Clark in front of it. Total number of times any person has become knocked unconscious, one, Lex, drove off a bridge into water. Total number of times someone has gone to the hospital, zero. Total number of times Clark tells or shows someone other than Lana his abilities, one, Jeremy when he fights him at the end of the pilot.